Now, we continue with Mile High Magazine. Here's your host, Adam Morgan. Working as a career law enforcement officer for Matthew Horace was a double-edged sword. As an African-American police officer and later an ATF agent, he saw firsthand the racism against people and communities of color. On the other hand, as a police officer, he has been ostracized by many and not trusted by his own community. Greetings again. I'm Adam Morgan. In his book, The Black and Blue, A Cop Reveals the Crimes, Racism, and Injustice in America's Law Enforcement, among other pertinent topics, he courageously takes on the situation of police officer-involved shootings of African-American men who were unarmed without any weapons. He takes a serious look at the in-fear-for-my-life arguments being employed to exonerate officers without any accountability. Our insightful look at what goes on behind the badge with now-retired career law enforcement officer Matthew Horace continues on this edition. Largely, white Americans still said, if they go by a police officer on the side of the road and they see someone out of the vehicle, they still wonder what the person did wrong to get stopped. Right. They don't, they don't, it never comes in their mind that maybe this was a call for assist. Maybe the car is broken down. Mm-hmm. Maybe the person in the car called police. Yeah. You know, they, they automatically they think the person did something wrong. But when people are dealing with um, uh, members of other races, non, non-minority races, they don't necessarily think that. So it becomes, it's a psyche and it, it's, it, it's in bed and it gets reinforced by things we see on television or on radio and in ads. Look at those um, tests that they do yeah. on YouTube where there's a stolen bike. No, there's a bike, right? Right. And the bike is locked. And a white person is sawing off the lock. And people walk by and say, can I help you? Right? Yeah. Are you having a problem? And that white person says, oh, yeah, I can't. I'm my, I don't have my key. And, you know, I can't get through the locks. Mm-hmm. I'm sawing it off. Yeah. And people yeah. offered, offered to help. And then when it's a black person a black kid, a black teen, people come by and say, what are you doing with that bike? I'm going to call police. Stop that right now. Even if the person says, it's my bike and I'm having a problem getting, you know, so people have this this perception that color means wrong for some reason. And it's been in bed in people's psyches for so long. And it does transcend into the way uh, communities are policed. I've always uh, noticed too, or at least from being in the military, that there are a lot of guys that are military police that are military police because they've always wanted to tell someone what to do. Mm. And that's why they want to do it, and that's what they do. And some of these same individuals, when they separate from the military, join the local police department. And from covering um, some officer-involved shootings, and some will say, well, they didn't stop when I told them to. Right. Or there's something they didn't do because I told them to. Well, they're, they're a psych- psychological... Uh, instruments that many organizations use that can weed out those sort of behaviors. But do we use them, though? Many departments do, but many don't. And many use them, but clearly uh, people are still slipping through the cracks in some ways. What you describe is something that many of these uh, tests are supposed to determine. And and, and really what police leaders will tell you is those, those behaviors are not the behaviors we want from police officers in 2000. In 19, we want people that can be thinkers, that are intellectual, that are intelligent. You still need to be able to respond. And, and I, I got to tell you, having been in the profession for 30 years, things go bad very quickly. Yeah. And, and when things go bad, you have to be able to respond. So sometimes there's really not 
a lot of time to put thought into things, right? You resort right. to you're your reacting. training. Right. You're reacting to your training and everything that your mind tells you about what is happening at that moment, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, when, w- one thing they have proven that better educated workforces, no matter what the profession, you know, makes for better organizations. Yeah. Are we putting too much are looking at law enforcement to do too much to manage society the way we have overloaded teachers with too much of the parenting to do with kids? We absolutely are. And I think the last chapter in the book, um, we talk about the fact that police are the fixers of everything, and we shouldn't be. And I'll give you an example. One out of every four police killings in the United States involves someone who is mentally ill. Yeah. But we largely are not qualified or trained to deal with people who are mentally ill, other than from a public safety perspective. And what I mean by that is if, 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 if we're called to an intersection because someone is naked and they have on cowboy boots and they have two swords, we are dealing with that as a public safety issue. We are not qualified, certified, or trained to determine if that person has schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depressed, or any other malady. But people who are trained in dealing with people who are mentally ill can determine that. And they can determine that by the language they use. And they'll ask them, are they on medication? You know, if there is no imminent threat. And when they ask them, they'll say, what do you take? And they'll ask them, when did you take it? Or are you not on your medicine? Or were you in a hospital? They can get to the bottom of what's causing this problem. We're trained to come to the intersection and tell the person, drop the swords now. And we're also trained to deal with threats and mitigate threats. Right. So drop the swords now. And if you make a move towards us and you don't comply, then that oftentimes ends up in an escalation of force. And um, mentally ill, we're just not trained to deal with them. Yeah. As a a culture, we're not trained. Sure, sure. It seems as if young adults these days are, uh, you can call them millennials, whatever, they seem to have, they seem to be more multicultural than previous generations. Right. Uh, they seem to be more tolerant or at least uh, they're able to interact among cultures and people of color a lot better. Will we be seeing that in policing someday if some of them go into law enforcement? Well, we would hope and most organizations would agree to have an organization that represents the communities you serve. You're always better off to have people who look like you know, the people, you know, who, who were in charge of policing. Yeah. Uh, and many times that's possible and many times it is impossible. But what you don't want is you don't want people who don't understand cultural nuances. And you can't understand cultural nuances of every race and every gender and every culture. But yeah. you don't want a department that doesn't represent and doesn't reflect the entire community that you serve. Sure, sure. What was it like the first time you went into an African-American community with the uniform on? <laughs> well, How were you perceived? <laughs> how were you accepted or how were you rejected? Well, in, in, in answer to your question, quite simply, and I've said this to people throughout the year since the book evolved, when you are an African-American law enforcement officer, you can never be quite black enough and you can never be quite blue enough. And it is our hope that when we get in uniform, we're going to be that beacon of light and that beacon of hope for people in the communities because when they, we're, we're hoping, you're always hoping that when people see you, they see a voice that they can at least resonate with. That doesn't always happen. 
Right. And in many cases, people treat you worse. <laughs> right. So you kind of get used yeah. to this idea. And, and it's really it's, it's, it's a balancing act. You get used to this idea. And it's not all the public. Right. It's just some of the public. Sure. You get used to this idea that you're not wanted in certain environments. Right. And most times the environment you're not wanted in, you probably need to be there. Right. <laughs> right. True. Right. Yeah. But then you also get used to the idea that you got to deal with the internal issues within the organizations where, you know, once upon a time there were no African-American officers. And once upon a time there were no women officers. And once upon a time there were no Hispanic officers. Yeah. And then you deal with the dynamics of navigating race and culture within organizations. And then you do it out in the streets when you're trying to do your job. Mm-hmm. And it's a very it's a very challenging battle at times. I think you mentioned in, in, in your book, in your writing, too, or in your research about uh, police departments that are taking a much more progressive direction in not only training but updating officers. I think you mentioned Seattle mm-hmm. as one of those. Tell us some some more and some of the things that they are doing. Well, you know, community policing is one of the initiatives, and, you know, some departments are for it. Some say they're for it, but they're not really exercising you know, those options as much as they, they should be. But also, well, officer wellness is very important. You know, we ask people to do arguably one of the most difficult jobs on earth outside of the military. Sure. And we don't sometimes look after them and their well-being. Now, in every corporate environment I've ever been exposed to, wellness is a key element of human resources. But in policing, it's almost discouraged to say, I'm having a problem or I'm having a challenge or I'm suffering from depression. Or I'm, you know, I'm falling into alcoholism. It's almost, you know, because we're taught to be that person that can deal with everything. Yeah. Right. And then many times you have people out here that are working that should be seeking help in other areas of their life that aren't. And a good example of that is in New Orleans. Uh, We spoke with uh, Superintendent Michael Harrison, who is now in Baltimore. Yeah. And he said in New Orleans, they instituted a program where officers were incentivized to step in. And I'll give you an example. If you and I come to work and you're dealing with some heavy-duty things in your life and we go out and, we stop and, we, and we're going to make a traffic stop right? and I'm your partner, well, shouldn't I have a duty to say, I'll take the lead on this one? If I know you're just having a bad day and a bad week, you know, in a bad moment, mm-hmm. then why can't I say, hey, I'll take the lead. You, I'll be the primary. You'll be the secondary. Sure. Why? Because you have so much going on in your life right now that it might interfere with you being – having good judgment at any given point. People will test you, and it's not always easy. And when people see um, police officers doing some of the things we see on video, they wonder what in the world happened and what caused this person to snap. Police officers are human. Yeah. And we have bad days just like everybody else has bad days. And not to mention the constant stress. The constant stress. You go to one call, you see someone dying. You go to another call, someone attacks you, you arrest them without incident. You go to the next call, people are yelling and screaming at you. You go to the next call, and there's a real problem, and you might have to escalate, you know, use of force. So it is a constant, and depending on where you work, it can be more constant than, than in others. But it's a very difficult job. And, you know, we say in the book, policing is a very difficult job. Uh, one yeah. of my fraternity brothers, Phil Banks, was the assistant chief in New York, and, and Phil is a nationally recognized uh, police chief and police executive. And he says, listen. Sure. He said, black people know how hard the job of policing is. What they don't understand is why police are never wrong. Yeah. And that creates tensions in the community as well. In other words, are, are you ever wrong? <laughs> Can we just say we were wrong here, right, and we're going to deal with it? Or is it always going to be 
sound bites and bullets and crisis communication. You talk about good policing and bad policing. Absolutely. Good policing, doing the right stuff, bad policing, somebody who shouldn't be there. Absolutely. It's all, it's all behavior oriented. And, we, and you know good police. Police officers that are engaged with the community, that use, use good judgment, where their behavior is not dictated by implicit bias and prejudices. And listen, I've worked with hundreds, of, if not thousands, of police officers that are just that way. White police officers, black police officers, Hispanic police officers. But I've also worked with, with, with police officers that were the total opposite. And they were sort of like ticking time bombs. And, you know, they're throwing out the N-word every other word. And they're using every racial slur that you can imagine. And, you know, those kind of people have no place in policing. But other police who hear it are not going to, not going to say no, that. They're no. going to toe the line. And Well, what, what, what happened through the 80s and through the 90s as organizations started to really, really address diversity within the ranks of law enforcement yeah. is many organizations, you know, working with their HR departments, starts to implement zero-tolerance policies. I had an incident when I was an agent, and I was in a car with an, a colleague, and some gentlemen, some African-American young men almost hit us in a, in, a, in a vehicle. And we came within, I don't know, a couple seconds of having an accident, and he yells out the, out of the car the N-word at these people, you know? And the idea is the only thing that happened wrong there was that I was there. Yeah. So, the, yeah. You, know, so you, know, you know how we, we think from an academic standpoint – if people will do it around us, then they'll definitely do it when they're not around us. Yeah. Oh, of course. You know, so and, and but then when you say it, people want to act like it doesn't happen. Well, it does happen. And, you know, it's interesting while we were writing the book and I asked this question of every law enforcement officer we spoke to. Right. Black, white and otherwise. Did you come up in a culture where racial slurs were were used? Oh, absolutely. Every black officer, every Hispanic officer, you know, New York to L.A. to Chicago to New Orleans, and they mm-hmm. all admitted, yes, that when I came on, it was, it was unbelievable. But then as the laws changed and the rules and policies changed, then organizations started to, there started to be a consequence for that type of behavior. Sure. And then things started to change. It doesn't change hearts, but it changes behavior. The, the obvious talk show host question is, do we ever see this end, what we can do to stop it? But probably that isn't realistic. More realistic is... What kind of things can we put into place to hire better people who will react better? And some things the public needs to know so that they manage themselves better when situations occur. There's definitely a two-way street here. So the first thing, to your earlier point of, as society evolves and the color of America changes, you talked earlier about more people being of minority persuasion, no matter what their persuasion is. And as children and young people start to interact more with people, mm-hmm. then you're going to see that change because the people who are entering the profession are not likely to be people who have not had any access to people of color. Yeah. So that changes part of the discussion. Accountability in law enforcement, hiring, recruitment, testing, retention, promotion, and training. When you have those things in place, then you can monitor and weed out people that shouldn't be in the profession. Matthew Horace, retired police officer and author of the book, The Black and Blue, A Cop Reveals the Crimes, Racism, and Injustice in America's Law Enforcement, has been our guest again on this edition. We thank him for his time, insights, and sharing recommendations regarding what can be done to lessen the rash of officer-involved shootings of unarmed African-American men. I'm Adam Morgan. Do keep in touch. Stay on your game, and we thank you for sharing a few moments of your weekend with us.